you, I do hope you're well, and welcome to the brand new pale look <laughs> for Ben Wardle Revision. Hello, welcome. I am embracing the pale life. My skin may be the same colour as this piece of paper, but do you know what? We ditched the fake tan. I've done dry January. I was like, right, let's do fake tan free February. This is how my 2020 is going, guys. How is your start to the year? What's happening? How's your revision going? Welcome along. If you still recognise me, I do hope you are well. Coming up today, we are talking utilitarianism. Now, utilitarianism is the fourth of the ethical theories we are exploring for normative ethics. Uh, we've done natural law, we've done situation ethics, we've done Kant, and we're doing utilitarianism. Now, I think utilitarianism is probably the one it's quite difficult actually to get your head around it as it actually needs to be understood but once you get into it it's very interesting and it's actually very practical in its application in the world today i think the whole utilitarian ideal and the utility principle of maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain is one that people can really relate to today we see happiness and your pleasure and your enjoyment as very, very important. You know, if you look at the Victorian era when it was all about the suppression of pleasure and it was all about trying to control um, and standardise people and their behaviour, there's a very, very clear difference to the 21st century ideal of doing what makes you happy. But people might think, oh, it's just about, it's a new thing, you know, it's all about pleasure. Religious people won't like that. Actually, we can trace this back 2,500 years to the ancient Greek philosophy of Epicurus who um, proposed his whole theory of hedonism which was that life is about pleasure and you should pursue pleasure and happiness and that kind of joy and also the work of Aristotle and his ideas on eudaimonia and this is an interesting idea about happiness and pleasure often and we're going to have a real discussion about this because this goes to the heart of our critique of utilitarianism often we can think that um, happiness is all about pleasure and I think pleasure's got a lot of negative connotations to it if you talk about pleasure you're sort of thinking about like sex and drugs and alcohol and sort of fulfilling basic animalistic if you like needs and the church was very uh, keen to condemn that and to say you know you're meant to be greater than that you're meant to be elevating yourself to be worthy of God and so you need to leave these animalistic bestial pleasures of sex and all of that behind and that formed the whole history of morality for a big period of western history but now and actually no not now 2000 years ago aristotle had a very very clear idea that actually happiness is not found in these um, animalistic pleasures of things like sex and drugs and you know your sensual pleasures if you like of overindulgence with eating and that kind of thing but actually happiness is of a different kind it's all about um, purpose and flourishing and fulfilling what is highest in your nature so eudaimonia for Aristotle is the aim of human life it's achieving this happiness that comes not from pleasure but from achieving your purpose from fulfilling your potential from flourishing and I love that word and it's very powerful in his world outlook of flourishing as a human being so we'll be looking at the different ideas about pleasure we've got two key thinkers here we've got Jerry Bentham who was in the born in 1748 I think I've not got the dates to have and yes he was I've just seen them <laughs> in 1748 and then we've got John Stuart Mill who came along and disclaimer he is my all-time favorite philosopher I am a John Stuart Mill fangirl obsessive addict if John Stuart Mill said it 
I'm there. Do you know what I mean? I am a super fan, I have to admit it. So we've got that to get our teeth into. He came along in, seven, in 1806, sorry, and he sort of tweaked a few of the things that Jeremy Bentham was saying. So we will start, just to give you an overview, we will start by looking at Bentham and his ideas of act utilitarianism, and then we'll move our way through to John Stuart Mill, his ideas of rule utilitarianism and higher, lower pleasures. And then we will conclude by taking a look at them both as a sort of evaluation point. So sit down, settle in, get yourself a cup of tea, get yourself a hobnob or whatever biscuit you're feeling today. You might be doing the January. I don't know, you might be watching it the night before the exam in June in the sun. So do you know what? If the exam's tomorrow, get yourself, can you drink? No, I don't recommend that. Get yourself a nice orange juice. Leave the Prosecco for after the exam, please. So let's get things started, shall we? We're going to start with uh, Jeremy Bentham, 1748. Both of these key thinkers, by the way, very, very prominent social reformers. So there's a lot we can say about the contemporary ethical issues, such as homosexuality. Both of them argued for the um, decriminalisation of homosexuality. They said, you know, it doesn't cause any harm. So why are, we, why are we trying to control people's sexual practices? And they also were key proponents for women's rights. So very, very prominent social reformers, both of these key thinkers. So I just keep seeing how pale I am and I'm like, who's that? I'm like, oh wait, it's me. So let's get on to it, shall we? Jeremy Bentham, perhaps one of his most famous quotes, um, and he wrote all these ideas about utilitarianism in a text called A Fragment on Government. And that gives you an indication of the practicality of utilitarianism. They believed it was a good system for leadership, for running a country, if you like. And he wrote, very famous quote, write it down, get your pens out. He wrote, nature has placed mankind under the governance of two sovereign masters, pleasure and pain. And from this, he deduces the greatest happiness for the greatest number should be our measure of right and wrong. So you can imagine this almost like the scales of justice. On one hand, you've got pleasure. On the other hand, you've got pain. And we're substituting them for right and wrong. So essentially, what brings pleasure and happiness is right. And what brings pain, suffering, unhappiness is wrong. And that is how we should be making our moral decisions. Um, and it's this idea that we are governed as human beings by two sovereign masters, pleasure and pain. And we naturally feel these. These are just part of our human existence and human self, if you like. And it's all about we have to connect with that, realise that and act accordingly to maximise as much pleasure as possible for both ourselves and for other people. The greatest happiness for the greatest number and to minimise as much pain, suffering and harm as possible. So he's very clear, Jeremy Bentham, on the importance of act utilitarianism. In each situation, in each context that you're in, you should act to bring about the greatest happiness slash pleasure. And this is quite a difficult distinction. Is, is what's pleasurable what will make you happy? I personally don't think so. Oh, there's a few pleasures that do bring a bit of happiness, if you know what I mean. But on the whole, you know, we're, we're just substituting the words at the moment. The greatest happiness for the greatest number is our measure of right and wrong. Um, happiness slash pleasure, pain slash suffering, that's our idea of right and wrong. So it's quite emotion and quite human nature driven in terms of acting on those instincts and those impulses that are part of the human being and the human outlook and psyche, if you like. Um, and he's therefore, Jeremy Bentham's approach, very much focused on the individual. It's on the act. It's on you in that situation acting to bring about the greatest happiness for the greatest number. So you might be thinking, well, how do you do that? How does he actually make that happen in practice? 
Well, it's not called utilitarianism for nothing. Oh no. So utilitarianism, the word utility can be translated as usefulness. Okay, so it's about doing what increases the overall happiness and doing what decreases the overall evil. And that's what should shape your actions. And utilitarianism, it means utility. This is very significant because what um, Benson tries to do is create a useful, practical approach for making moral decisions that will bring about the greatest happiness for the greatest number, they will maximise pleasure and minimise pain. And in order to do this, he devises what we call the hedonic calculus. Okay, and it's basically like a calculator, if you like, for what will bring about the greatest happiness for the greatest number. Remember, hedonism, as we said about Epicurus in ancient Greek times, hedonism is this idea that life is about happiness or life is about pleasure. So we can link that, we can connect that and relate that in. And there are seven factors on this hedonic calculus. And the calculus is to be used in each act. Remember, Jeremy Bentham is all about act utilitarianism. In that act, you should be going, right, listen listen up here we are i'm gonna get my calculus out it, could, it should be an app someone needs to create the app don't they so what you do is essentially you go through seven key points and you calculate utility the usefulness of that action for bringing about the greatest happiness for the greatest number maximizing pleasure minimizing pain okay i'm going to talk you through them there's a couple of them that i can't really say well so i'm going to write them down in the comments as well just so you actually can spell them and you actually, if you've got a better pronunciation, send me a voice note. Do you know what I mean? Do a little audio of it. So we've got intensity, duration, certainty, proquink, I can't say it, you see, propinquity, fecundity, purity, fecundity, is that right? I don't know. Um, purity and extent. In easier language, the strength for intensity, the length, for duration, the certain for guarantee for certainty, the speed for prequinquity. I can't say that word. I'm sorry. Um, fecundity, likeness, likeliness, purity is purity, and extent is the extent of it. All right. So the seven factors I've written them down below because I just can't say the words. Do excuse my speech. What can I say? Greatest happiness with the greatest number. Well, there we have it. So that is the approach that we've got here. Very interesting. He's saying if you can look for each of these seven points, what will bring about the greatest happiness for the greatest number? So you look at the strength of the happiness. How long will it last? Are we guaranteed it will um, actually bring happiness? How quickly will this come? What's the likeliness it will work? You know, what is the purity of the action and the intention? And what is the extent of it? How many people will be affected? And he says, if you can use the calculus and calculate that there will be a greater balance of pleasure over pain, then you should do that action and you should do it. Now, the problem, there's a lot of problems with these things, but say if you're using something like the hedonic calculus to simply calculate the greatest pleasure for the greatest number, you can end up justifying awful things which a moral person would absolutely not accept for example um we have got gang rape you know so 10 people raping one person pleasure because pleasure is such a subjective term you know when it comes to things like sex ethics one man's pleasure is another man's pain they might get in a twisted way, pleasure out of committing that crime. And because there's 10 of them and only one person who suffers as a result, 
if you just take it at face value, utilitarianism can justify things like gang rape. You could say, well, it's justified because it's bring about the greatest pleasure for the greatest number. Now, when we get onto John Stuart Mill and he starts to distinguish between pleasures, he says there's higher pleasures and lower pleasures, we can sort of correct that error. But right now, when we're looking at Jeremy Bentham and he's just saying pleasure and I can't speak, very significantly, he's talking about the quantity of pleasure, not the quality of it. John Stuart Mill talks about the quality of the pleasure, higher and lower. Bentham is all about the quantity, as we see from his calculus. It's numerical. It's not about the details, it's about the data, how much we can produce. So if you look at that, it becomes what's been, and this is the term we use, a swine ethic. It can be used to, to justify and to defend behaviours which surely, for the love of God, should not be justifiable, such as gang rape. It's a common example used for this, but it's a good example. You know, if we're just talking about maximising pleasure, we can end up with something called the tyranny of the majority, where the, the pleasure of the majority means we can justify the suffering of a minority because it's all about numbers and all about quantity and all about pleasure. So instantly we've got those criticisms coming in here and we can see, you know, the appalling consequences. Another point we can make about Bentham's approach here is it is too narrow in its focus by simply focusing on pleasure. Is he not restricting our morals and our moral code of conduct to something very, very narrow in focus, very restrictive and very based on self-indulgence? Is it not quite selfish? In that act, what's going to maximise pleasure and minimise pain? Is pleasure our ruling norm for what is right and wrong? Situation ethics says it should be love. Natural law is a whole world of its own. Kantian ethics would be like, what the hell? You know, you should be doing your duty and you should never be treating people as means to an end. And this is a good chance for me to just talk to you very quickly now about the um, teleological approach of utilitarianism it is very much based on the outcome so say where we've where we've got kant we've got deontology and it's all about your duty in each act with um utilitarianism it's teleological it is say with the hedonic calculus about predicting what will be the outcome it's about predicting what will bring about the greatest amount of pleasure over pain now we have instantly got to be thinking how on earth can you predict future pleasure you know how can you confidently make an accurate prediction jeremy benson would say well i've got my calculus if you just use the calculus you'll be sorted you'll be fine but actually is that the case you know we need to get into a discussion about how accurately can you predict future pleasure for example using this calculus and again, it's about quantity over quality. It's about maximising pleasure, minimising pain. How does that affect individuals? Should you not have a duty to, can that not justify any behaviour? Because you're saying, well, it's going to bring the greatest number, pleasure. Kant would say, if that act is not moral in itself, it shouldn't be done. So very, very interesting discussion points that we can start to have here about Bentham and his act utilitarianism based on the quantity of pleasure and calculated using his hedonic calculus. Okay, very interesting points. What I want to do then is to move on to John Stuart Mill and his approach. He, now he's got a connection 
to Jeremy Bentham. His father, James Mill, was very good friends with Jeremy Bentham. Um, and John Stuart Mill's youth was characterised by a very, very strict education. He became a very, very intelligent young man because of it. But he rebelled against it as well because he was given such an intensive education. His father wanted him to carry utilitarianism on. So he was overwhelmed and he became incredibly intelligent, but he also suffered because of it. And he's been really interesting in his comments that he's made about how we need an education, not just in the academia, if you like, but also in our emotions. Um, and he went on to, and he had a breakdown, bless his soul, because of everything. But then he came back better than ever before with his landmark text on liberty. And this book, I have to recommend it to you. It's my favourite book. You need to read it. On Liberty. And basically, in On Liberty, John Stuart Mill proposes his radical non-harm principle. The idea that people should be free to pursue their own happiness. Everybody should be free to pursue their own happiness so long as they do not harm anybody else. And it's the non-harm principle. Quite a simple idea. And we think today, yeah. But at the time, if you think in the 1800s when he was writing, the 19th century, this was a radical monumental idea. So his whole philosophy is based on the idea of giving people freedom. He says we should be free to think for ourselves. We should be free to say what we think. We should be free to determine what we will do with our lives. He was writing in a time when people were very much controlled, oppressed, suppressed by the state, by religious authorities, by the society at large. He proposed a radical new agenda for empowering individuals to be autonomous over their lives as long as they didn't cause harm to anyone else. He said the state can only intervene in your choices and in what you do if there is a risk you will harm someone else or you will harm society. And that is his sort of manifesto for government. And he, again, developed the idea of utilitarianism. It forms the bedrock of his approach and his outlook. But he gets a bit more specific. So whereas Jeremy Bentham is telling us that um, pleasure and pain, it's all about the quantity, John Stuart Mill wants to talk about the quality. He says we cannot just say it's all about pleasure. It, it, you know, it can't be. We have to look at pleasure and say what kind of pleasure is desirable? What kind of pleasure do we want to see? And he breaks it down. He says there are higher pleasures and there are lower pleasures. And perhaps one of the most famous quotes from him is this one. It is better to be a human dissatisfied than a pig satisfied. And what he's saying here is that humans have this higher level of consciousness and awareness and this higher culture. And it is better and happiness and pleasure should come from engaging with those higher pleasures and that higher realm of culture, of intellect, of society, of, you know, that wholesomeness, if you like, in comparison to your self-indulgent, basic, animalistic pleasures of sex, of drugs, you know, of alcohol, of overindulgence, all this kind of thing. So he's saying, yes, you're right, happiness is to be maximised and suffering and pain and harm is to be minimised, but we need to get specific. So any allegations that utilitarianism, you know, becomes sort of a kind of swine ethic or, you know, it becomes too focused on hedonism, it's too hedonistic, it's too narrow, John Stuart Mill almost uh, saves us, if you like, because he comes along and he says, we need to reevaluate. We need to see there are different kinds of pleasure and you should be maximising the higher pleasures, such as reading, such as art, such as intelligent conversation, such as genuine love, you know, an appreciation of nature, this kind of thing, higher cultural, societal, 
intelligent pleasures as opposed to it being about let's maximize sex let's maximize debauchery you know let's all go wild you know woo anarchy let's go let's have pleasure and he's saying you know we have to recognize our higher level of self as societal human beings and you know he's very interested in turning utilitarianism into a societal ethic he was an mp he was the first person in parliament to call for women's um rights and he really put forward the women's suffrage movement this is in the 1800s and he was very keenly engaged this is what i love about him he wasn't just a philosopher that sat there writing his books he actually stood up for what he believed he believed in empowering the individual he believed in free speech and freedom of expression and he stood up for that by going into parliament and actually bringing about social change but his ethics it, you know jeremy bentham is focused on the individual on the act for John Stuart Mill, it's about the rule. It's about using utilitarian principles to say, what rule should I follow that will bring about the greatest happiness for the greatest number? So for example, the rule, do not kill. It's quite clear, if we all follow that rule, it will maximize pleasure or happiness and minimize pain because it's minimizing the number of people killed. You know, it, it doesn't bring you happiness, does it? But then at the same time, you know, he's saying like, we should, homosexuality should be legal because we should be maximizing happiness and pleasure and minimizing pain because what harm does this actually cause? What harm is this causing to society? You could argue it would undermine the foundations of society, it would undermine, you know, the sanctity of marriage, etc., etc. But he's arguing it, it doesn't. It doesn't cause harm to anybody else. What you choose to do in the bedroom is your business alone. It's private. It belongs in the private sphere. And so there is no right for the state to be um, to be criminalising it in that manner. So what we see in John Stuart Mill and Benson, just quickly, is a difference between the hedonism that sort of, I think, Jeremy Benson seems to, you know, get involved with and to appreciate and to, or, or at least not rule out because he's just looking at pleasure as a quantitative thing. Whereas with John Stuart Mill, we've got a focus on that eudaimonia we talked about with Aristotle, this idea of a higher pleasure, of a higher level of engagement here of flourishing and living well and we should be maximizing people's opportunity to flourish and live well minimize the suffering pain and oppression that they face in their lives and that that should be the, the ruling norm for making rules and again with bentham it's about the act and calculating in the act for john stuart mill utilitarianism is about creating rules society and everybody can follow to maximize key point here the pleasure and happiness of society and minimize the, the pain and suffering of the people. So it's very much for him, not a selfish theory, because it's about key, key, key quote here, the common good. It's about the common good of society, not just the individual. And he's very keen to promote freedom because he believes that will lead to flourishing. And it's about, you know, creating a positive society where people can flourish and they can be free. So some very, very interesting ideas here. What I want to do is take a quick look at some practical applications of this. And I am going to turn to the textbook. I'm going to do it. I'm going to, do you know what? I, you know, I have to hold my hands up. We turn to the textbook every now and then. We do a little, a little something. So very famous is the, sorry, let me just have a little cup of tea. Very famous is, sorry, I need my coffee. You know how it is. <laughs> no fake time. We're just drinking more tea. It gives you a glow. It gives you a glow. Um, the trolley problem. 
So this is devised by Philippa Foote, and it's the idea, you'll know this, if a train is heading towards a group of children, um, should you, and, and you are able to divert it so that instead it runs over one elderly tramp, should you do it? So should you, you know, you're, you've got the train line here and you've got it like going off to a siding and there is this cart coming along the line and there's a group of children on the track and they can't get out of the way in time. And you, you're stood there and you would just be a bystander if you like and you would just witness, this is what's going to happen if you're there or not, the, the, the cart going down and it would kill the children, the group of children. But it just so happens that you're standing next to like a lever, I don't know what they're called, you know when it changes the track? And they pull that thing and it goes down a different track. I'm not an expert on trains, guys. I'm not. Google it. Do you know what I mean? Go and watch some train spotting videos. They're very relaxing. Um, you've got the... Going straight down, you're by the lever. If you pull that lever, it will redirect the car onto a different track. It will go down like a siding. And there is like an elderly tramp asleep on the tracks. Now, you can just do nothing. So you can omit to act. And it will just happen and you'll just be a witness and it will be awful and you'll feel horrible that you've seen that, but you weren't responsible. Or you can take matters into your own hands. You can pull that lever so you're consciously doing something. You're purposefully bringing about someone's death. Pull that lever, redirect it, and it will kill the elderly tramp, homeless, whatever, instead. And the question is, should you do it? Utilitarianism says, well, listen, the greatest happiness for the greatest number. You need to act because you need to think, what are the consequences of my action? Do I do nothing and let five children die? Or do I do something and one elderly person will die? It sounds awful, doesn't it, saying this? But this is like a, you know, hypothetical situation. Utilitarianism, as it is, would require that you do. You're not, you know, you're not thinking, oh, I'll feel bad because I've done this. Because you're not meant to think of yourself. You're meant to be thinking of society at large and of the greatest happiness for the greatest number. Saving five young people in this way is, it sounds awful saying it, worth more than um, one elderly homeless person. So you would, in utilitarian principles, be compelled to pull that lever and redirect the cart. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Kant would say, absolutely not, no way. You know, it's your duty to do the to do the um, right thing and you would be actively killing somebody by doing that. You you know, there is a rule, do not murder. And if you pull that lever, you would be murdering someone. It's an interesting debate as well about acts and omissions, which we can get into in, in a... Um, a, a debate about euthanasia you know it's very i said that very excited it's a very interesting topic to talk about acts and omissions but basically utilitarianism is entirely concerned with the outcome it's teleological as we know you've got to predict the consequences what will bring about the greatest happiness for the greatest number and so in this situation the action itself is not important um it's not judged so you would act which and that act would be you choosing to kill someone for the greater good because you'd be saving five lives but killing one you be, you know what i mean you're balancing up there so that's an interesting um application another one um is suppose a murder is committed in a town where there is racial tension the crime is believed to be racially motivated the sheriff knows that the real perpetrator is dead but cannot prove it if he were to arrest and frame a passing homeless person tensions in the community would be erased and no one ever need to know now, if we look at this, again, this is where utilitarianism causes some problems. If we look at this, you know, what do you do? Do you wrongly accuse one person, one innocent person 
for the sake of protecting a whole community from disintegrating into racial chaos and racial tensions. Utilitarianism, again, would justify this because that one person does not have importance, in, even though it's wrong to do it to that person, for the greater good, utilitarianism would say you've got to do it. Because, um, yeah, and again, it's a hypothetical scenario, but if you then do it, you know, you, you are sacrificing one person for the sake of the, the greater good. This is essentially what utilitarianism seems to me to be its biggest downfall. I, I term it the tyranny of the majority. It seems to forget people's human rights. That person, the homeless person that you've picked on to blame it on and prosecute for something they've not done for the greater good so that maybe hundreds of people don't die in like racial tensions you know and violence between different community groups as a result of tensions um because it would ease the tensions if you just frame that person and you know got them out of the way kind of thing it's interesting because human rights seem to go out the window interestingly jeremy benson what didn't have a problem with that he described human rights as nonsense on stilts um, you know, rejecting this idea. What about the individual, the individual person? This is a concern. For Kant, that would be wrong because you are lying. You know, that person should not be treated as a means to an end. In utilitarianism, we end up, and this is an evaluation point, treating people as means to an end because we are concerned with the greatest happiness for the greatest number. It's about a, a later thing as opposed to in this situation where we are today, where we are right now, doing our duty for that person. We can use people as ends to achieve something greater. Is that a sound ethical basis? Is that acceptable? You might think it is, and that, you know, if you can justify that, that's fine. But you can use a Kantian critique to say, hang on a minute, you're using people as a means to an end. You are neglecting their individual human rights. But we've got more to come on this. Just a quick quote that John Stuart Mill wrote on utilitarianism he wrote the power of sacrificing their own greatest good for the good of others the only self-renunciation which it applauds is devotion to the happiness of others either of mankind collectively or of individuals so there is this kind of selflessness you do sometimes have to use your forget yourself or use somebody to bring about a greater good for society so it's not as nice as you think you know you've got to realize utilitarianism is quite brutal in these situations where you think it's all about oh it's all about pleasure and happiness but to actually bring about that happiness what has to be done what has to be sacrificed another point both bentham and mill were keen social reformers as i've said i didn't need the textbook to tell you that who argued for the decriminalization of homosexuality as well as i can't even turn a page equal rights for women and um, so the, the point here is that utilitarianism is progressive and modern in its approach. Um, and an interesting point on business ethics, I do want to bring in. I have got a video on business ethics coming up, so keep an eye out. But a utilitarian approach to business is shown in the work of uh, Adam Smith. He's a famous economist. And he famously said that... Um, um, fairness in business was good economic sense. If we treat customers and workers well, we are likely to make more money in the long run than if we cheat or exploit others. So here, um, utilitarianism has an instrumental approach to actions. Things are not good in themselves, but only in regard to how they help the greater good to be achieved. Again, Kant would be in uproar about this. He says you should do good because it is good, because it is the right thing to do. He is there saying, Adam Smith is there saying, well, yes, you should be ethical, but only because that will benefit you 
in the long term, you know, that will bring about good for you. And if you think about utilitarianism, could it lead to us exploiting uh, workers in uh, third world countries for the greatest happiness of the greatest number? Because it means cheaper prices. You know, can you subject 500 people to appalling working conditions? Because if we do that, then 5 million people in the UK can enjoy really um, cheap clothes because we've used that labour here, but it's a smaller number that will bring about more happiness and more pleasure for them. Really, really interesting debates to be had on utilitarianism and its practical applications in the world. Um, but I want to do now is to, oh, actually, I want to just mention preference utilitarianism and Peter Singer. And this is where your preferences should count no more than the preferences of anybody else when it comes to your utilitarian decision making. You should step outside of yourself. You should, you know, there should be no preferential treatment in terms of when you're making your utilitarian decisions. Interestingly, I think Peter Singer uh, applies this to animals as well. He's quite a big speaker on speciesism, the idea that we discriminate against other species other than human beings. So he says, you know, you need to be considerate and you need to be more neutral in making your moral decisions, in making those judgments. So what are the strengths and weaknesses of this approach? Well, let me start with three punchy headline words. Um, it's quantitative, predictive, and it's measurable, okay? These can be um, bad things as well, actually, because like I said, quantitative, it's a good thing because you can actually measure it. Whereas situation ethics is do the most loving thing. And you're thinking, what? You're thinking, how on earth can we have any consistency in this? If it's quantitative, if there is a hedonic calculus, it's very clear. It's very predictive. It's very measurable. You can actually look at it in like quite a mathematical way, if you like, in terms of your numbers and your stats. Um and how it works in that way. So you could certainly say that is a good thing because you can actually calculate it. If you accept that maximising pleasure and minimising pain should be our only judge of right and wrong, then go for it. You can even look at the stats and you can be quantitative about it. And then you can actually measure it. Um, the fact that it's predictive can also be a weakness because you, you can never predict properly. And we will be getting onto this with the weaknesses. Let me tell you some more strengths. It's secular. It doesn't depend on God, whereas natural law depends on the eternal divine, natural and human laws. Situation ethics depends on you believing Jesus is right about love, for example. Um, even Kant, remember, although he doesn't include it in his moral theory, he assumes uh, that God exists as one of his three postulates for the practical application of his morality. Um, this is secular, so anybody can use it in any context so in the world. Today we can use it, you know, anywhere you can use this. You do not need to depend on God in a higher power, in a higher set of ideals. You need to just believe in the importance of maximising pleasure, minimising pain, which is a very accessible idea because we can all experience those two things. Um, happiness is agreed to be a good aim. You know, I think most of us would appreciate that life is about happiness. You deserve to be happy. Even the Dalai Lama, um, he's written a landmark text, a Buddhist thinker here, uh, basing his teaching on the ancient teaching of Buddhism. Um, he writes a book called The Art of Happiness. The purpose of human life, he writes, is to be happy. So even ancient spiritual wisdom tells us that happiness is a good aim in life. And in today's 21st century culture, I think happiness is accepted as a, a good ideal, as something that we should aspire to have in our lives. 
You say it's democratic because it's about the greatest happiness for the greatest number in the same way that that's how democracy works in terms of, you know, whoever gets the most votes, we, we put them in power. It's a democratic method. It's not about one person dictating, I want to do this, I want to do this, this is what we're going to do. It's about saying what's going to bring about the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people. So those democratic principles that we can see there. It's quite a progressive moral theory because it of oh, the homosexuality and women's rights. It's essentially saying people should have the freedom to pursue their own happiness and fulfillment and pleasure in life as long as they're not hurting anybody else, as long as they're minimising pain. So we see that as quite progressive as opposed to, say, natural law, which is very strict and rigid in its adherence to say the five primary precepts you could say you know because uh, say Bentham is saying you should calculate it in each situation it's giving you a lot more autonomy and authority as an individual moral decision maker to be making your moral decisions to be determining what you want to do in that situation using that predictive power using that measurable method over on the flip side then weaknesses how do you actually measure happiness one man's pleasure is another man's pain this idea that pleasure should just be the thing we all pursue what are the implications of that for society you know will we just be reduced to being animalistic and bestial you know and just like anarchy and chaos because we're all pursuing you know our sexual pleasures just instant gratification good song that isn't it that's a throwback i think that was like my gcse's period many many years ago um instant gratification and you know this idea of just fulfilling these instinctive basic desires is morality and ethics not about going above that going above that animalistic state and say look we're meant to be fully developed wise human beings and we need to take it up we need to be awakened and this is a nice link to the naturalistic fallacy the idea that just because something comes naturally to us it doesn't mean it's good or that we should pursue it so for example um you know just because i like pleasure does that mean it's good what about the fact that i desire it naturally makes that good for example you know i could desire a food which is actually really unhealthy for me just because i desire chocolate doesn't mean it's good for me so you need to be aware that just because something we say oh it's natural to you so that should be that must be our you know our key decider for right and wrong it should be our measure just because nature has placed us under the two sovereign masters of pleasure and pain is it actually what we should be following should it actually become our moral decision making norm or actually you know for example um kant is saying you know man must be disciplined for by nature he is raw and wild should we not be seeking to control those urges and desires and all those emotions and feelings and uh, you know like the stoics did stoics was a group who were very much about control of your emotions of doing your duty of thinking about things in a rational way if you're driven by pleasure and a fear of pain are you not undermining that further it's very subjective pleasure is very subjective what is pleasurable to you might be painful to me sex ethics is a great example of this things like bdsm and again the swine ethic argument utilitarianism can effectively justify things like gang rape it can justify abhorrent crimes that nobody would think were moral because it's based on pleasure which is so so subjective wd roth a key of thinker on this said it is a single factor moral decision making method you know in reality can you just depend on one thing can you really depend on pleasure or happiness as your one source of moral decision making what does this reduce morality to what are the effects where do we have any consistency clarity or certainty 
and he also says dilemmas are not pre-packaged we cannot just have this one size fits all approach to morality we need to take a more nuanced you know a more higher level approach to understanding how to um make moral decisions there is a criticism it's too demanding the idea you need to whip out your hedonic calculus and start calculating it all in a, in each act for some people they're like what you just need to be able to make your decisions not be like what's going to be the intensity what's going to be the frequency what's going to be the duration you know we need to think a bit more practically is it too demanding on the individual and is it too demanding to expect you to step outside yourself for example with you know, um, John Stuart Mill is saying it's about society. Is it too demanding to expect you to just forget yourself, to forget your own needs and rights and to think about society at large? You know, is that too demanding on us as human beings? We're not all Mother Teresa. We're not all Pope Francis. We're not all saintly. We do actually have our own feelings, needs and desires. Should they not take priority over the good of the whole of society? Utilitarianism says, no point. Um, Jeremy Bentham, he said that human rights are nonsense on stilts, which leads me very nicely onto this criticism of the tyranny of the majority. Utilitarianism can effectively justify causing harm and pain to a minority for the pleasure and happiness of a majority. Kant would have a lot to say about this in terms of you're using people as a means to an end. Remember, it is a teleological theory, so effectively you can do that. You're using people to achieve something for another group. So effectively, the minorities, you know, get treated very, very badly because you're justifying it with doing something and achieving something for the majority. So a very interesting relationship there between the majority and the minority and, you know, the human rights of the individual. On the one hand, utilitarianism is empowering the individual to be free, to pursue happiness and pleasure and prosperity and flourishing and to make decisions for themselves. But on the other hand, it's very focused on the majority, on the greatest number. So what happens to the individuals who then end up being exploited and used, for example, in business, to achieve a means to an end where there is a greater